Stories, fables, ghostly tales. Welcome listeners and happy spooky October to you mates. I'm shaking it up a little bit today with four French folk stories. Our first is a short poem about a dragon with multiple heads. Our second is a short story about a bewitched and evil pony. Our third and fourth are actually two of the same tales told in different ways. I wanted to demonstrate how tales evolve over the years and how they are changed in some ways but remain the same in others. A nice start to our Halloween slash Samhain October month I feel. So sit back, relax and listen to some French tales of old. Rest assured though, next week I'll be continuing featuring this tale of the stone in the stream. The Dragon with Many Heads An envoy of the Port Sublime, as history says, once on a time, before the Imperial German court did rather boastfully report, the troops commanded by his master's firmen as being a stronger army than the German, to which replied a Dutch attendant, our priest has more than one dependent who keeps an army at his own expense. The Turk, a man of sense, rejoined, I am aware. What power your emperor's servants share? It brings to mind a tale both strange and true, a thing which once myself I chanced to view. I saw come darting through a hedge which fortified a rocky ledge. A hydra's hundred heads, and in a trice my blood was turning into ice, but less the harm than terror. The body came no nearer, nor could unless it had been sundered, two parts at least a hundred. While musing deeply on this sight, another dragon came to light, whose single head avails to lead a hundred tales, and seized with just a fright, I saw him pass the hedge, head, body, tails, a wedge, of living and resistless powers. The other was your emperor's force. This, ours. The Goblin Pony Don't stir from the fireplace tonight, said old Peggy, for the wind is blowing so violently that the house shakes. Besides, this is Halloween, when the witches are abroad and the goblins, who are their servants, are wandering about in all sorts of disguises, doing harm to the children of men. Why should I stay here? said the eldest of the young people. No, I must go and see what the daughter of old Jacob, the rope maker, is doing. She wouldn't close her blue eyes all night if I didn't visit her father before the moon had gone down. I must go and catch lobsters and crabs, said the second. And not all the witches and goblins in the world shall hinder me. So they all determined to go on their business or pleasure, and scorn the wise advice of old Peggy. Only the youngest child hesitated a minute when she said to him, You stay here, my little Richard, and I will tell you beautiful stories. But he wanted to pick a bunch of wild thyme and some blackberries by the moonlight, and ran out after the others. When they got outside the house, they said, The old woman talks of wind and storm, but never was the weather finer, or the sky more clear. See how majestically the moon stalks 
through the transparent clouds. Then, all of a sudden, they noticed a little black pony close beside them. Oh, they said. That is old Valentine's pony. It must have escaped from its stable and is going down to drink at the horse pond. My pretty little pony, said the eldest, patting the creature with his hand. You mustn't run too far. I'll take you to the pond myself. With these words, he jumped on the pony's back and was quickly followed by his second brother, then by the third and so on, till at last they were all astride the little beast, down to the small Richard who didn't like to be left behind. On the way to the pond, they met several of their companions, and they invited them all to mount the pony, which they did, and the little creature did not seem to mind the extra weight, but trotted merrily along. The quicker it trotted, the more the young people enjoyed the fun. They dug their heels into the pony's sides and called out, Gallop, little horse! You have never had such brave riders on your back before! In the meantime, the wind had risen again, and the waves began to howl. But the pony did not seem to mind the noise, and instead of going to the pond, cantered gaily towards the seashore. Richard began to regret his thyme and blueberries, and the eldest brother seized the pony by the mane and tried to make it turn around, for he remembered the blue eyes of Jacob, the rope maker's daughter. But he tugged and pulled in vain, for the pony galloped straight on into the sea till the waves met its forefeet. As soon as it felt the water, it neighed lustily and capered about with glee, advancing quickly into the foaming billows. When the waves had covered the children's legs, they repented their careless behavior and cried out, The cursed little pony is bewitched! If we'd only listened to old Peggy's advice, we shouldn't have been lost. The further the pony advanced, the higher rose the sea. At last the waves covered the children's heads, and they were all drowned. Towards morning, old Peggy went out, for she was anxious about the fate of her grandchildren. She sought them high and low, but could not find them anywhere. She asked all the neighbours if they had seen the children, but no one knew anything about them, except that the eldest had not been with the blue-eyed daughter of Jacob the Ropemaker. As she was going home, bowed with grief, she saw a little black pony coming towards her, springing and curvetting in every direction. When it got quite near her, it neighed loudly, and galloped past her so quickly that in a moment it was out of her sight. The Dirty Shepherd Once upon a time, there lived a king who had two daughters and he loved them with all his heart. When they grew up, he was suddenly seized with a wish to know if they, on their part, truly loved him, and he made up his mind that he would give his kingdom to whichever best proved her devotion. So he called the elder princess and said to her, How much do you love me? As the apple of my eye, answered she. Ah, exclaimed the king, kissing her tenderly as he spoke. You are indeed a good daughter. Then he sent for the younger and asked her how much she loved him. I look upon you, my father, she answered, as I look upon salt in my food. But the king did not like her words and ordered her to quit the court and never again to appear before him. The poor princess went sadly up to her room and began to cry. But when she was reminded of her father's commands, she dried her eyes and made a bundle of her jewels and her best dress, and hurriedly left the castle where she was born. 
She walked straight along the road in front of her, without knowing very well where she was going or what was to become of her, for she had never been shown how to work, and all she had learnt consisted of a few household rules and receipts of dishes which her mother had taught her long ago. And as she was afraid that no housewife would want to engage a girl with such a pretty face, she determined to make herself as ugly as she could. She therefore took off the dress that she was wearing and put on some horrible old rags belonging to a beggar, all torn and covered with mud. After that, she smeared mud all over her hands and face and shook her hair into a great tangle. Having thus changed her appearance, she went about offering herself as a goose girl or shepherdess. But the farmer's wives would have nothing to say to such a dirty maiden and sent her away with a morsel of bread for charity's sake. After walking for a great many days without being able to find any work, she came to a large farm where they were in want of a shepherdess and engaged her gladly. One day when she was keeping her sheep in a lonely tract of land, she suddenly felt a wish to dress herself in her robes of splendor. She washed herself carefully in the stream and, as she always carried her bundle with her, it was easy to shake off her rags and transform herself in a few moments into a great lady. The king's son, who had lost his way out hunting, perceived this lovely damsel a long way off and wished to look at her closer. But as soon as the girl saw what he was at, she fled into the wood as swiftly as a bird. The prince ran after her, but as he was running he caught his foot in the root of a tree and fell, and when he got up again, she was nowhere to be seen. When she was quite safe, she put on her rags again and smeared over her face and hands. However, the young prince, who was both hot and thirsty, found his way to the farm to ask for a drink of cider, and he inquired the name of the beautiful lady that kept the sheep. At this, everyone began to laugh, for they said that the shepherdess was one of the ugliest and dirtiest creatures under the sun. The prince thought some witchcraft must be at work, and he hastened away before the return of the shepherdess, who became that evening the butt of everybody's jests. But the king's son thought often of the lovely maiden, whom he had only seen for a moment, though she seemed to him much more fascinating than any lady of the court. At last he dreamed of nothing else, and grew thinner day by day till his parents inquired what was the matter. Promising to do all they could to make him as happy as he once was, he dared not tell them the truth, lest they should laugh at him. So he only said that he should like some bread baked by the kitchen girl in the distant farm. Although the wish appeared rather odd, they hastened to fulfill it, and the farmer was told of the request of the king's son. The maiden showed no surprise at receiving such an order, but merely asked for some flour, salt, and water, and also that she might be left alone in a little room adjoining the oven, where the kneading trowel stood. Before beginning her work, she washed herself carefully and even put on her rings, but while she was baking, one of her rings slid into the dough. When she had finished, she dirtied herself again and let the lumps of the dough stick to her fingers so that she became as ugly as before. The loaf, which was a very little one, was brought to the king's son, who ate it with pleasure, but in cutting it, he found the ring of the princess and declared to his parents that he would marry the girl whom that ring 
fitted. So the king made a proclamation through his whole kingdom, and ladies came from afar to lay claim to the honor. But the ring was so tiny that even those who had the smallest hands could only get it on their little fingers. In a short time, all the maidens of the kingdom, including the peasant girls, had tried on the ring, and the king was just about to announce that their efforts had been in vain when the prince observed that he had not yet seen the shepherdess. They sent to fetch her, and she arrived covered with rags, but with her hands cleaner than usual, so that she could easily slip on the ring. The king's son declared that he would fulfill his promise, and when his parents mildly remarked that the girl was only a keeper of sheep, and a very ugly one too, the maiden boldly said that she was born a princess, and that if they would only give her some water and leave her alone in a room for a few minutes, she would show that she could look as well as anyone in fine clothes. They did what she asked, and when she entered in a magnificent dress, she looked so beautiful that all saw she must be a princess in disguise. The king's son recognized the charming damsel of whom he had once caught a glimpse, and flinging himself at her feet, asked if she would marry him. The princess then told her story, and said that it would be necessary to send an ambassador to her father to ask his consent and to invite him to the wedding. The princess's father, who had never ceased to repent his harshness towards his daughter, had sought her through the land, but as no one could tell him anything of her, he supposed her dead. Therefore it was with great joy he heard that she was living, and that a king's son asked her in marriage, and he quitted his kingdom with his elder daughter so as to be present at the ceremony. By the orders of the bride, they only served her father at the wedding breakfast bread without salt, and meat without seasoning. Seeing him make faces and eat very little, his daughter, who sat beside him, inquired if his dinner was not to his taste. No, he replied, the dishes are carefully cooked and sent up, but they are all so dreadfully tasteless. Did not I tell you, my father, that salt was the best thing in life? And yet, when I compared you to salt, you show how much I loved you. You thought slightingly of me, and you chased me from your presence. The king embraced his daughter, and allowed that he had been wrong to misinterpret her words. Then, for the rest of the wedding feast, they gave him bread made with salt, and dishes with seasoning, and he said they were the very best he had ever eaten. Donkey Skin There was once upon a time a king who was so much beloved by his subjects that he thought himself of the happiest monarch in the whole world, and he had everything his heart could desire. His palace was filled with the rarest of curiosities, and his gardens with the sweetest flowers, while in the marble stalls of his stable stood a row of milk-white Arabs with big brown eyes. Strangers who had heard of the marvels which the king had collected and made long journeys to see them were, however, surprised to find the most splendid stall of all occupied by a donkey, with particularly large and drooping ears. It was a very fine donkey, but still, as far as they could tell, nothing so very remarkable as to account for the care with which it was lodged, and they went away wondering for they could not know that every night, when it was asleep, bushes of gold pieces tumbled out of its ears. 
which were picked up each morning by the attendants. After many years of prosperity, a sudden blow fell upon the king in the death of his wife, whom he loved dearly. But before she died, the queen, who had always thought first of his happiness, gathered all her strength and said to him, Promise me one thing. You must marry again. I know for the good of your people as well as yourself. But do not set about it in a hurry. Wait until you have found a woman more beautiful and better formed than myself. Oh, do not speak to me of marrying, sobbed the king. Rather let me die with you. But the queen only smiled faintly and turned over on her pillow and died. For some months the king's grief was great. Then gradually he began to forget a little, and besides, his counsellors were always urging him to seek another wife. At first he refused to listen to them, but by and by he allowed himself to be persuaded to think of it, only stipulating that the bride should be more beautiful and attractive than the late queen, according to the promise he had made her. Overjoyed at having obtained what they wanted, the counsellors sent envoys far and wide to get portraits of all the most famous beauties of every country. The artists were very busy and did their best, but alas, nobody could even pretend that any of the ladies could compare for a moment with the late queen. At length, one day, when he had turned away discouraged from a fresh collection of pictures, the king's eyes fell on his adopted daughter, who had lived in the palace since she was a baby, and he saw that if a woman existed on the whole earth more lovely than the queen, this was she. He at once made known what his wishes were, but the young girl, who was not at all ambitious and had not, and had not the faintest desire to marry him, was filled with dismay and begged for time to think about it. That night, when everyone was asleep, she started in a little car drawn by a big sheep, and went to consult her fairy godmother. I know what you've come to tell me, said the fairy, when the maiden stepped out of the car, and if you don't wish to marry him, I will show you how to avoid it. Ask him to give you a dress that exactly matches the sky. It will be impossible for him to get one, so you will be quite safe. The girl thanked the fairy, and returned home again. The next morning when her father, as she had always called him, came to see her, she told him that, she would give him no answer until he had presented her with the dress the colour of the sky. The king, overjoyed at this answer, sent for all the choicest weavers and dressmakers in the kingdom and commanded them to make a robe the colour of the sky without an instant's delay, or he would cut off their heads at once. Dreadfully frightened at this threat, they all began to die and cut and sew, and in two days they brought back the dress, which looked as if it had been cut straight out of the heavens. The poor girl was thunderstruck and did not know what to do. So in the night, she harnessed her sheep again and went in search of her godmother. The king is cleverer than I thought, said the fairy, but tell him you must have a dress of moonbeams. And the next day, when the king summoned her into his presence, the girl told him what she wanted. Madam, I can refuse you nothing, said he, and he ordered the dress to be ready in twenty-four hours or every man should be hanged. 
they set to work with all their might, and by dawn next day the dress of moonbeams was laid across her bed. The girl, though she could not help admiring its beauty, began to cry, till the fairy, who heard her, came to help. Well, I could not have believed of him, said she, but ask for a dress of sunshine, and I shall be surprised indeed if he manages that. The goddaughter did not feel much faith in the fairy after her two previous failures, but not knowing what else to do, she told her father what she was bid. The king made no difficulties about it, and even gave his finest rupees and diamonds to ornament the dress, which was so dazzling when finished, that it could not be looked at save through smoked glass. When the princess saw it, she pretended that the sight hurt her eyes and retired to her room, where she found the fairy awaiting her, very much ashamed of herself. There is only one thing to be done now, cried she. You must demand the skin of the ass he set such store by. It is from that donkey he obtained all his vast riches, and I am sure he will never give it to you. The princess was not certain. However, she went to the king and told him she could never marry him till he had given her the ass's skin. The king was both astonished and grieved at this new request but did not hesitate an instant. The ass was sacrificed, and the skin laid at the feet of the princess. The poor girl, seeing no escape from the fate she dreaded, wept afresh and tore her hair, when suddenly the fairy stood before her. Take heart, she said. All will now go well. Wrap yourself in this skin, and leave the palace, and go as far as you can. I will look after you. Your dresses and your jewels shall follow you underground, and if you strike the earth whenever you need anything, you will have it at once. But go quickly. You have no time to lose. So the princess clothed herself in the ass's skin and slipped from the palace without being seen by anyone. Directly she was missed. There was a great hue and cry, and every corner, possible and impossible, was searched. Then the king sent out parties along all the roads, but the fairy threw her invisible mantle over the girl when they approached, and none of them could see her. The princess walked on a long, long way, trying to find someone who could take her in and let her work for them. But though the cottagers whose houses she passed gave her food from charity, the ass's skin was so dirty they would not allow her to enter their houses, for her flight had been so hurried. She had no time to clean it. Tired and disheartened at her ill fortune, she was wandering one day past the gate of a farmyard, situated just outside the walls of a large town, when she heard a voice calling to her. She turned and saw the farmer's wife standing among her turkeys and making signs to her to come in. I want a girl to wash the dishes and feed the turkeys and clean out the pigsty, said the woman. And, to judge by your dirty clothes, you would not be too fine for the work. The girl accepted her offer with joy, and she was at once set to work in a corner of the kitchen where all the farm servants came and made fun of her and the arse's skin in which she was wrapped. But by and by, they got so used to the sight of it that it ceased to amuse them and she worked so hard and so well that her mistress grew quite fond of her. And she was so clever at keeping sheep and herding turkeys that you would have thought 
She had done nothing else during her whole life. One day, she was sitting on the banks of a stream, bewailing her wretched lot, when she suddenly caught sight of herself in the water. Her hair and part of her face was quite concealed by the ass's head, which was drawn right over like a hood, and the filthy matted skin covered her whole body. It was the first time she'd seen herself as other people saw her, and she was filled with shame at the spectacle. Then she threw off her disguise and jumped into the water, plunging in again and again, till she shone like ivory. When it was time to go back to the farm, she was forced to put on the skin which disgusted her and now seemed more dirty than ever. But as she did so, she comforted herself with the thought that tomorrow was a holiday and that she would be able for a few hours to forget that she was a farm girl and be a princess once more. So, at break of day, she stamped on the ground as the fairy had told her and innocently the dress like the sky lay across her tiny bed. Her room was so small that... There was no place for the train of her dress to spread itself out, but she pinned it up carefully when she combed her beautiful hair and piled it up on the top of her head, as she had always worn it. When she had done, she was so pleased with herself that she determined never to let a chance pass of putting up her splendid clothes, even if she had to wear them in the fields, with no one to admire her but the sheep and turkeys. Now the farm was a royal farm, and one holiday when Donkeyskin, as they had nicknamed the princess, had locked the door of her room and clothed herself in her dress of sunshine. The king's son rode through the gate and asked if he might come and rest himself a little after hunting. Some food and milk were set before him in the garden, and when he felt rested he got up and began to explore the house, which was famous throughout the whole kingdom for its age and beauty. He opened one door after the other, admiring the old rooms, when he came to a handle that would not turn. He stopped and peeped through the keyhole to see what was inside and was greatly astonished at beholding a beautiful girl clad in a dress so dazzling that he could hardly look at it. The dark gallery seemed darker than ever as he turned away, but he went back to the kitchen and inquired who slept in the room at the end of the passage. The scullery maid, they told him, whom everybody laughed at and called Donkey Skin, and though he perceived there was some strange mystery about this, he saw quite clearly there was nothing to be gained by asking any more questions. So he rode back to the palace, his head filled with the vision he had seen through the keyhole. All night long he tossed about, and awoke the next morning in a high fever. The queen, who had no other child, and lived in a state of perpetual anxiety about this one, at once gave him up for loss. And indeed his sudden illness puzzled the greatest doctors, who tried the usual remedies in vain. At last they told the queen that some secret sorrow must be at the bottom of all this, and she threw herself on her knees beside her son's bed and implored him to confide his trouble to her. If it was ambition to be king, his father would gladly resign the cares of the crown and suffer him to resign in his stead. Or, if it was love, everything should be sacrificed to get for him the wife he desired, even if she were daughter of a king with whom the country was at war at present. Madam, replied the prince, whose weakness would hardly allow him to speak, do not think me so unnatural as to wish to deprive my father of his crown. 
As long as he lives, I shall remain the most faithful of his subjects. And as to the princess you speak of, I have seen none that I should care for as a wife, though I would always obey your wishes, whatever it might cost me. Oh, my son, cried she, we will do anything in the world to save your life, and ours too, for if you die, we shall die also. Well, then, replied the prince, I will tell you the only thing that will cure me. A cake made by the hand of donkey skin. Donkey skin? exclaimed the queen, who thought her son had gone mad. And who or what is that? Madam, answered one of the attendants present, who had been with the prince at the farm. Donkey skin is next to the wolf, the most disgusting creature on the face of the earth. She is a girl who wears a black, greasy skin, and lives at your farmer's as a hen's wife. Never mind, said the queen. My son seems to have eaten some of her pastry. It is in the whim of a sick man, no doubt, but send at once and let her bake a cake. The attendant bowed and ordered a page to ride with the message. Now, it is by no means certain that Donkey Skin had not caught a glimpse of the prince, either when his eyes looked through the keyhole or else from her little window, which was over the road. But whether she had actually seen him or only heard him spoken of, directly she received the queen's command. She flung off the dirty skin, washed herself from head to foot, and put on a skirt and bodice of shining silver. Then, Looking herself into her room, she took the richest cream, the finest flour, and the freshest eggs on the farm and set about making her cake. As she was stirring the mixture in the saucepan, a ring that she sometimes wore in secret slipped from her finger and fell into the dough. Perhaps Donkey Skin saw it, or perhaps she did not. But anyway, she went on stirring, and soon the cake was ready to be put in the oven. When it was nice and brown, she took off her dress and put on her dirty skin and gave the cake to the page, asking at the same time for news of the prince. But the page turned his head aside and would not even condescend to answer. The page rode like the wind, and as soon as he arrived at the palace, he snatched up a silver tray and hastened to present the cake to the prince. The sick man began to eat it so fast that the doctors thought he would choke. And indeed, he very nearly did, for the ring was in one of the bits which he broke off, though he managed to extract it from his mouth without anyone seeing him. The moment the prince was left alone, he drew the ring from his own pillow and kissed it a thousand times. Then he set his mind to find how he was to see the owner, for even he did not dare to confess that he had only beheld Donkey Skin through a, through a keyhole, lest they should laugh at his sudden passion. All this worry brought back the fever, which the arrival of the cake had diminished for the time, and the doctors, not knowing what else to say, informed the queen that her son was simply dying of love. The queen, stricken with horror, rushed into the king's presence with the news, and together they hastened to their son's bedside. My boy, my dear boy, cried the king, who is it you want to marry? We will give her to you for a bride, even if she is the humblest of our slaves. What is there in the whole world that we would not do for you? The prince moved to tears at these words, drew the ring, which was an emerald of the purest water, from under his pillow. Ah, dear father and mother, 
Let this be a proof that she whom I love is no peasant girl. The finger which that ring fits has never been thickened by hard work, but by her condition what it may. I will marry no other. The king and queen examined the tiny ring very closely, and agreed with their son that the wearer could be no mere farm girl. Then the king went out and ordered heralds and trumpeteers to go through the town, summoning every maiden to the palace, and she whom the ring fitted would some day be queen. First came all the princesses, then all the duchesses' daughters, and so on in proper order, but not one of them could slip the ring over the tip of her finger. To the great joy of the prince, whom excitement was fast curing, at last... When the high-born damsels had failed, the shop-girls and chambermaids took their turn, but with no better fortune. Call in the scullions and shepherdesses, commanded the prince, but the sight of their fat red fingers satisfied everybody. There is not a woman left, your highness, said the chamberlain, but the prince waved him aside. Have you sent for donkey skin, who made me the cake? asked he. And the courtiers began to laugh, and replied that they would not have dared to introduce so dirty a creature into the palace. Let someone go for her at once, ordered the king. I commanded the presence of every maiden, high or low, and I meant it. The princess had heard the trumpets and the proclamations, and knew quite well that her ring was at the bottom of it all. She, too, had fallen in love with the prince in the brief glimpse she had of him and trembled with fear lest someone else's finger might be as small as her own. When, therefore, the messenger from the palace rode up to the gate, she was nearly beside herself with delight, hoping all the time for such a summons. She addressed herself with great care, putting on the garment of moonlight whose skirt was scattered over her with emeralds. But when they began calling to her to come down, she hastily covered herself with her donkey skin, and announced she was ready to present herself before his highness. She was taken straight into the hall, where the prince was awaiting her, but at the sight of the donkey skin, his heart sank. Had he been mistaken, after all? Uh, Are you the girl? He said, turning his eyes away as he spoke. Are you the girl who has a room in the furthest corner of the inner court of the farmhouse? Yes, my lord, I am, answered she. Hold out your hand, then, continued the prince feeling that he must keep his word, whatever the cost, and, to the astonishment of everyone present, a little hand, white and delicate, came from beneath the black and dirty skin. The ring slipped on with the utmost ease, and, as it did so, the skin fell to the ground, disclosing a figure of such beauty that the prince, weak as he was, fell on his knees before her, while the king and queen joined their praise to his, indeed their welcome was so warm, and their caresses so bewildering, that the princess hardly knew how to find words to reply, when the ceiling of the hall opened, and the fairy godmother appeared, seated in a car made entirely of white lilac. In a few words, she explained the history of the princess, and how she came to be there, and, without losing a moment, Preparations of the most magnificent kind were made for the wedding. The kings of every country in the earth were invited, including, of course, the princess's adopted father, who by this time had married a widow, and not one refused. But what a strange assembly it was! 
each monarch travelled in the way he thought most impressive, and some came born in litters. Others had carriages of every shape and kind, while the rest were mounted on elephants, tigers, and even upon eagles. So splendid a wedding had never been seen before, and when it was over, the king announced that it was to be followed by a coronation. For he and the queen were tired of reigning, and the young couple must take their place. The rejoicing lasted for three whole months. Then the new sovereigns settled down to govern their kingdom and made themselves so much beloved by their subjects that when they died, a hundred years later, each man mourned them as his own father and mother. Folks, I hope you enjoyed your French folk stories. A little bit of horror Halloween with the goblin ponytail. That particular tale reminds me of the sea kelpie, if you have ever heard of one. There are some stories about the Kelpie that sees a horse burst out of the sea froth from the crash of a wave. A stunning black stallion, or blue stallion at times, with the intent of drawing children in, particularly to hop on its back, to only have them once mounted the stallion, become magically stuck to it, taking them to the sea to devour the children whole. Well, all but their livers, which are seen to wash up on the seashore. Oh yeah. Freaky shit indeed, mates. Folks, I hope you enjoyed today's set. Leave me a review if you'd be so kind, or support the show via the donation link in the episode notes. I want to thank my brilliant O-Nighty Titan Maya for being amazing and supporting me at this awesome tier. Thanks to her, we get the most epic old-time radio remasters that any podcast ever gets a chance to showcase with the entire of the Sherlock Holmes repertoire almost remastered. And when that's done, I'm not going to stop there. With my RX-8 advanced software, I'm going to repair and remaster a whole different array of old ancient audio, bringing it back from the archives. Thank you, Maya. You make it possible. And my awesome white tea warlord, Lezam Bauer. Thanks to your kindness, mate, I'm able to continue updating my plugins and ensuring I have the latest music. When it comes to Stone in the Stream episodes or even dramatic stings or multiple musical pieces strung together, that's all made possible because of your lovely self. So thank you, Mr. Amazing, for being brilliant. And my second white tea warlord, Paige Kramer, the gal that puts a pep in my step whenever I'm recording new folk stories. Thanks to your support, Paige, I'm able to source them quickly and effectively, but also very slowly gather special effects and sounds for the podcast with your donation. Thank you very, very much, Paige. You are exceptional. And my awesome, enigmatic Earl Grey enforcers, try saying that twice, I'm lucky to have... Just Heather, Juicebox Andy, Peter Raffelli, Dolphin and Cow, Michelangelo Yacone, Divided by Zero, and Leah Fassig. Thank you all so much. I'll be out this Friday, unfortunately, as I have a family get-together and an event over the next two days. Yep, I'm flat tack, which will take up my recording time. But next week will be the usual Monday, Wednesday, Friday episodes, so that means Stone in the Stream and Old Time Remastering. But I'm also working on some true crime stories just for you lovely, so be sure to tune in then, mates. Have a wonderful weekend, and I'll catch you next week. As always, folks, till next we meet.